This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for February 2nd, 2024. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, researchers are digging into thousands of years of coral to chart El Nino's behavior over time. Producer Kevin McLean talks with staff writer Paul Vucin about his travels to the Pacific island of Vanuatu to witness some of the complex reef drilling needed to harvest these samples. Next on the show, I talk with researcher Veronica Edgar about an unexpected method of signaling inside the body. Her work suggests the pulse of the blood, its mechanical drumming, affects neurons in the brain. We discuss why this might be a useful way for the body to talk to itself. The El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO, affects our lives. We hear about it on the news and weather reports warning that it's going to be a big El Nino year and that sort of thing. But it's a complicated process that's been hard to add into long-term climate predictions. So to find out more about what the future of ENSO might look like, some researchers are looking through the climate record to find out how it changed in the past. Staff writer Paul Vucin traveled far out into the Pacific to report on the past and future of ENSO, and he caught up with a team of scientists trying to sample some uniquely accessible ancient corals that might contain some ENSO insight. Welcome back to the Science Podcast, Paul. Sounds like you had quite an adventure. It was. It was a lot of adventure just when I was planning it, and then it became even more of an adventure when I was there. Yeah, I bet. So you were traveling out into the Pacific to Vanuatu, is that right? What was that journey like? Yeah, so Vanuatu is a kind of a volcanic island chain a bit northeast of Australia, very much in kind of in that influence, just west of Fiji, the southern Pacific. So, you know, to fly there from the east coast of the U.S., it's uh, quite a, a trek through Los Angeles and Fiji, then to the main island of Vanuatu, then to the island where this research was happening. Why were you going to Vanuatu in, in particular? One of the biggest drivers of year-to-year changes of climate beyond the inexorable rise of greenhouse gases is the El Nino Southern Oscillation, flipping of the Pacific from El Nino to La Nina. We know about it well, we can predict it, but what's really uncertain is what will happen to this as warming continues. Will El Ninos get stronger and more frequent? Will La Ninas get stronger more frequent? And there's no great models disagree on this. And one of the best ways to try and figure this out 
is looking at corals from a time period where there was a big change in temperature, which is the last ice age. And so the corals that are helpful to look at this at, that's, this is where, where you can find them? This island in Vanuatu has a kind of very distinctive geological history where it's on a subduction zone where a continental plate dives under another and there's a, a seamount, an undersea mountain that has pushed the island up some. And so this part of the island in the recent past has risen faster than sea level rise, even though we had glaciers melting from the ice age that added a huge volume of water to the oceans, parts of this island are at the surface with corals that should be under 100 meters of water. Okay, so they're a little bit easier to get to than where, where they maybe should be. Most attempts to drill corals from the last ice age, it's a needle and haystack really, of <laughs> you know, using this expensive drill shift and you have to get extremely lucky to actually hit the intact coral that records little shifts in the climate, like a tree ring. Mm -hmm. And so there were like several of these corals that they knew that they could sample? One of the researchers, Fred Taylor, has worked in this region since the 1980s and a lot of that was reconstructing this geological history and looking more at just sea level rise over time span. But he had figured out the story of uplift and they knew that if you get a long enough intact coral, you could get this longer climate record. But work didn't happen until he met another researcher, Judd Parton, who a decade ago, a bit more than that, but just putting together the ability to drill on this reef, this kind of reef terrace, which is extremely hazardous. Just traditional drills don't really work. So they actually had to get money to build their own drill rig. And then they went first went back out there in 2019 and kind of got a strong proof of concept, got some very promising coral records, but they knew they needed to go back again to really seal the deal. Yeah. Tell me about what these sites looked like. What was, what did this whole operation look like when you were there? This a reef terrace. So it's this rock that's made up of ground up fossilized coral, extremely sharp holes everywhere, kind of the most hazardous type of landscape to walk on. You can imagine no even surface anywhere to stand on. They build this drill rig. They have all these parts cut, they haul down, they assemble this drill rig. And then that's where they drill. If they have a hole they're working on, they start drilling. They use ocean water. They run the water in the hole to take out any chips or things like that, that will cause it to get cemented in there. Uh, it's loud, it's noisy. Every meter or so that they get down, they have to stop, haul it back up, do this kind of ungodly amount of screwing and unscrewing with these giant monkey wrenches to get this section of core out, take it over to a table, do more screwing and unscrewing to get the actual core out of this core catcher and then start all over again. So it's, it's a really kind of manual, painstaking work with, you know, a lovely little lunch break of shared food from the village. The work crews, are the researchers working with folks from the village? Yeah, so there are only a few folks from University of Texas at Austin who come and then they have a strong relationship with the village of Tanavusfus. It's about 500 villagers and they kind of rotate the folks who come down to work on the drill site. They have like great kind of mechanical skills. They keep these old pickup trucks running forever. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So the chief is down there a lot of the time and one other senior member who has served kind of the drilling captain and then the other folks rotate in. 
Was there anything in particular that they found while you were on site? They found a nice core of Diploestrea, which is one of the climate recorders that they were targeting that could be from over 16,000 years ago. But then they, you know, after a couple of days, we got some surprising news in that a tropical cyclone, what we would call a hurricane in the U.S., was forming to the northeast of the islands and weather models projected it to have a direct hit on the island that they're working on, Espiritu Santo. So they faced this question of what do we do at this point? One of the researchers was scheduled to leave already. And so he kind of accelerated his schedule because this, the village is quite remote from an already, you know, not hugely populated island, but it takes yeah. three hours <laughs> to drive through rivers because all the bridges have previously washed out. So you need pickup trucks. If there's too much rain, it's just impassable. And since I was only scheduled to be there for a few days, this one researcher, Rob, and I headed out a day early to try and get the last flight off the island. Everyone else hunkered down, brought all the drill rig and everything up much higher and waited for the storm to pass over a span of a couple of days. They got extremely lucky and it ended up going a little bit south of the island. So they just had strong winds and heavy rain, but nothing severe. So it turned out to not be a false alarm because a few islands got heavily hit in Vanuatu, but it didn't turn it into a humanitarian mission. <laughs> Jeez. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you were able to get out, out of there safely as well. What happens next? So they they collect all of these cores. What happens to them after? They continued to work after I left and I got into a really great groove. And in the last couple cores, they really pushed themselves to go deeper and found some beautiful intact corals from likely the last ice age, the peak of the last ice age. We were rolling the dice here. You want to drill as many holes as possible because just to get along the central growth axis of this coral is just, you just have to get lucky. There's no way of predicting exactly where it is that deep down. And they got pretty lucky. And these corals aren't quite long enough to say, oh, you know, this will be what El Nino looked like over this long time span. But now they know exactly where to drill. They'll be going back in May to really shore up this record of the past. Zooming out a little bit, I know you touched on this earlier, but what is all this telling us about El Nino in sort of a broader sense? Why are these corals so important? It gets unfathomably complex on the different interplays that can shape the future of El Nino between the atmosphere and the ocean. There are a few main drivers. It involves the pattern of warming of the Pacific Ocean and also changes to trade winds and ocean upwelling. The climate models make predictions, right, about what should happen. And in general, they suggest both El Nino and La Nina will get stronger in some way, like stronger, more frequent El Ninos, longer lasting La Nina. But observations haven't been able to say that's the case. And in some ways, have even run counter than that a little bit. With this coral record, if you can see that these mechanisms are working that would cause them to become less frequent in the past, then you might say, oh, we have confidence that what these models are saying will be true for the future. So that's kind of the general idea. This is the kind of most recent period where there's a the big, strong signal that we can get stuff near the surface. So let's use that to inform our projections for the future. Got it. And El Nino and La Nina kind of shape everything, especially in the drought in the Amazon. That's been going on right now. We're right at the peak of an El Nino right now. So those influences are being felt. 
Yeah, you talked about that in the story, how El Nino and La Nina conditions mean different things in all sorts of different places. People are obviously talking about it here in the States. I'm in California, you're on the East Coast. But what do those conditions typically mean in Vanuatu? In Vanuatu, uh, during El Nino, when you have these warm waters of the West Pacific shifting eastward, that kind of drags storm tracks east along with it. So Vanuatu becomes drier with cooler waters because that warmth is kind of shifting away. During La Nina, it gets warmer with more rainfall. And that's kind of the influence there. And so you can detect these changes with little isotopic variations in the coral calcium carbonate skeleton. Yeah, actually, that was another thing I was wondering about is what are all of the signals that you can get from looking at, at these coral cores? There are two main systems, and this is kind of a long known thing used for decades and it's been used for like the Holocene, the more recent period we live in for corals. So you have calcium carbonate, but if it's colder, little bits of strontium can substitute in for the calcium and that ratio of calcium to strontium can tell you about temperature. And then also there are two types of oxygen with 16 or 18 neutrons and it's kind of the same type of thing, but that can also reflect uh, rainfall because of evaporation, more light oxygen evaporates and so rainfall is enriched in light oxygen. Those ratios can also tell you about temperature and also about rainfall. What was sort of your big takeaway from not just traveling there, but the whole reporting process from the trip? What did you take away from all of this? One thing I really appreciate what Chad and his small team are doing is how integrated they are with the community. They live in one of the houses of the village. They're interacting with villagers all day, every day, really treating them as partners in the work. Local researchers in the Vanuatu Climate Office are also involved in this. And in an era where kind of Western scientists coming into regions and, you know, helicopter science, I feel like they've, they've done a quite good job in making sure they're really part of the community. And hopefully this research will continue to bear fruit and really we'll have some insights to the future that came from this, from the village of Tanafusfus. Great. Are you going back to Vanuatu anytime soon? Uh, probably not with two small <laughs> children. <laughs> Other stories call, but Judd and his team will be back in May. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us again, Paul. It was great to hear from you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Paul Lucen is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Veronica Egger about how the heartbeat impinges on the brain. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. 
On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. How does your body talk to itself? We've got these quick ways like the firing of nervous impulses or circulation of hormones in the blood, which can be slower. These are good for coordinating action, adjustment of the body chemistry, but there's also communication within the body that's more about self-awareness. This is called interoception, how the body knows how it's doing using sensory processes inside and then communicating that information inside and responding to those signals all inside interoception. This week in science, Veronica Egger and colleagues write about an unusual way the body seems to be communicating with itself. This is about how neurons might be detecting pulses, mechanical pulses from the blood. It is a fast way to communicate heartbeat to the brain. So Veronica's here. Hi, Veronica. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Sarah. Nice to talk to you tonight. Yeah, I'm really excited about this paper. This is kind of one of those, I don't even know if it's a, a lucky happenstance or a, how did you come to ask this question? What's going on with this like oscillation in the blood pressure affecting neurons firing? There's a lot of serendipity that made this project happen. So what we found is that neurons within the brain can actually feel the pulse. So the same way as you can feel the pulse if you touch your wrist and you can feel the pulsations in your blood vessels and then you can count along, we found that the neurons within the brain can actually do the same thing. Our starting point was really completely different. Yeah, like what were you looking for in the first place when you came across this? My lab and myself, I'm very much interested in how the brain processes information from the sense of smell in the first processing station, which is the olfactory bulb. So this is right above your nose and it gets the input from the neurons that are sitting in your nose and that are decoding the smells. And now it's known that in many areas of the brain, there's also coordinate activity between larger groups of neurons. And this coordinate activity is also pretty prevalent in the olfactory bulb. And so I wanted to know how my neurons of interest are also involved in this kind of coordinated activity. And since you cannot do this in a dish, develop a prep of an isolated olfactory bulb where the tissue is actually preserved. And this preparation requires that you basically hook up to the vasculature of the tissue and perfuse the tissue with artificial blood so that it stays alive. And you need a pump so that you can pump your artificial blood. I don't want to give away anything too soon here, but this did lead to some confusion, right? You saw coordinated activity, but you weren't really sure where it was coming from. Yeah, initially we did see coordinated activity, but it became very mysterious very soon. So this coordinated activity was in the same frequency range as respiration. So we thought, okay, this is some kind of intrinsic network activity that then can couple to respiration in the living animal. Well, yeah, why wouldn't you want your sense of smell to couple to your breathing, right? Exactly. And that's, that has been known for a long time because every time you inspire the air, of course, you get also odor molecules into your nose and then the system gets excited. So it makes a lot of sense that there should be a modulation in this frequency. So in fact, when we started working with this preparation and especially my postdoc, Luna Jamal, who is the first author of this study, she started to record, we indeed found 
oscillations in exactly this kind of frequency regime. So like two to four times a second in the rodent. But these oscillations were astonishingly regular. So they were much regular than you would expect for any biological system. It was just yeah. extremely regular. And so this makes you super suspicious because this is, of course, a, is a telltale sign of an artifact. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we also had evidence that it should be something biological because, for example, if we sort of made the tissue degrade, which you can do by, for example, no longer providing oxygen, it would degrade and then the signal is also gone. And this would happen to a classical artifact. Okay, then we did more and more experiments and every experiment told a different story and it was super puzzling. So after two years, I was really desperate, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine just being like, is my setup working or not? Being the predominant question for two years. Am I just too dumb to not understand <laughs> where the art is coming from? No, seriously. I mean, you doubt everything. Yeah, absolutely. Then there came this um, serendipitous moment when we realized three things. One is that we found that the pump actually generates pressure waves in the tissue that are the same in amplitude and frequency as the heartbeat does. There is pressure recordings from the living brain where you can see a very similar regime. So that sort of brought us to the idea that maybe it's some mechanosensory response so that the neurons can feel this pulsation of the vessels. So there's this coincidence then. So not only was the signaling in time with the pump, but the pump happened to be in this frequency range that the cells would be likely to respond to. It matches up with something we already know happens in the brain. Coarsely, it's, it matches up with your heartbeat. Because this did, we didn't know in the beginning. So, but that's what it does. So it, it does like, it always ejects like a, the fluid into the vessels and it does so at roughly the same frequency as the heart does and also with roughly the same pressure difference. When you say mechanical pressure, I think that's really important here. So the idea isn't that the heart is sending a signal to the brain on a nervous tract. The blood is pushing on things and there's receptors in the neurons that say, I sense pressure, I'm going to fire or I'm going to coordinate, right? Exactly. The idea is that the vessels in the brain are contracting and dilating all the time because of this blood pressure difference. And that has been also observed. So there is enough evidence for that. And then this kind of oscillation is basically transmitted, this mechanical oscillation to the nearby neurons, which have sensors in their membrane, which are responsive to when the membrane gets displaced a little bit, whenever there is an increase in pressure coming along. And these sensors actually have been discovered rather recently. And this discovery also got awarded the Nobel Prize in 2021. This is another lucky case for our study that I just read a paper describing that these sensors are present in the, our cells of interest in the olfactory bulb, where we already knew that they are important for generating these kind of oscillations. So these are PZO receptors. So these are... PZO receptors, exactly. Yeah, they react to pressure. And, and you know, we, when we feel things with our hands, you know, we're using that kind of apparatus. It's similar. So there are also PZO receptors in the somatosensory neurons in our hands. And they are also in other parts of the body whenever you have to record fast vibrations. So I'm not going too far, but for example, um, last July, there was also a paper saying that it's also important for sex. So, you know. <laughs> I do remember that paper, actually, but we did not cover it on the podcast. Go find that, guys. <laughs> How do we know that it's a mechanical response? How do we know that it's a piezo-type channel here that's mediating this interaction? Yeah, so in our work, there are several lines of evidence, but the most compelling one is probably that we used a specific 
tarantula toxin. So this is from a um, tarantula from the middle America. It's called Gramastola rosea. And it's actually a pet tarantula. So it's for people who like spiders. It's for the beginners because it's fairly easy to, to have around. But this tarantula has a specific venom like many of these spiders. And one component of this venom is actually capable of blocking these mechanoreceptors in the membrane. So it's not perfectly specific for the piezo, but it also is known to block the piezo fairly well. And so this was our way of proving this. So we injected the tarantula toxin into our isolated bulb, and then the oscillations were essentially gone, proving that it has to be mechanoreceptors. You didn't have to label it with an immunology type tool. You just just turn it off with a special venom. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, if you have special venom around, that's really cool. It's very helpful to have a special venom. That's right. So people think that the spiders actually use the venom to sting insects, which are the, is their favorite prey, and to just immobilize them. But for humans, it's like a wasp bite or something. It's not really dangerous for us. We don't care. Yeah. Okay. Getting back into this way that the brain knows about the heart. This isn't the only way that the brain knows what the heart is up to. There are other methods of getting this info, you know, around the body, but they're more complicated, involving more steps. The classical way of sensing our heartbeat that was known already before is vibration sensors in the aorta and in the cardiac tissue. So these are also connected to neurons that sit somewhere in your spinal cord, and they can basically record mechanical activation of your aorta or of your heart. And then these neurons would talk to other neurons higher up in the nucleus structus solitaris, which is not going to tell much to your audience, but anyways. Somewhere in the brain. <laughs> and then these neurons in the nucleus are talking higher up to the next station in the thalamus, and the neurons in the thalamus are talking to neurons in the cortex in the brain. So there's like a, a three-part chain, at least like a bucket brigade where the neurons tell other what's going on in the heart. And so this is the classical pathway, very well known. It mediates certain reflexes that are important for keeping our circulation afloat that also controls our blood pressure and so on. But the problem with this is that it's not super fast. It will basically arrive in the brain of humans about 200 to 300 milliseconds after the heartbeat. That's pretty asynchronous for a heartbeat, right? Yeah. And cognitive neuroscientists have lots of evidence that there is some modulation of human thinking, of human perception during the systole. So how should this happen if you don't have such a fast transmission mechanism? Yeah. This is still an hypothesis, but now at least we have shown that there is such a fast pathway that, that can explain this. How much faster do we know? Is it too soon to say? We did not do the calculations for humans, but we did do it for our Rats, mice, and there it's like arriving within 20 to 30 milliseconds. So it would be like a factor of 10 faster. And humans, it should be slowed down a little bit because of course the pathways are longer, but not that much. So it's certainly much faster than the classical transmission via these sets of neurons that are going up. We all know about brain waves. These are oscillations of the brain. When you talk about delta waves or in sleep, you have certain kinds of waves, and this is larger chunks of the brain all coordinating together, oscillating together. Is there some idea that those kinds of brain waves or oscillations in the brain might also talk to oscillations coming from the heart? Yeah, so if you look into these reviews on interoception that just have come out, they're speculating a lot about interactions between these body rhythms and rhythms in the brain so that they can somehow sculpt each other. So it's even more surprising that they have shown that the peristaltic movements of your gut can influence your brain activity and basically couple to brain oscillations. 
but this is really new territory. So it's be interesting to see what's going to come up there. Yeah, I really like to, to hear more about how, how those things work together mechanically or electrically. It's super interesting. I was also wanted to mention that people in the interoception field have put forward the idea that this kind of modulation of the brain rhythm by, for example, the heartbeat could be some kind of scaffolding or clocking that allows to basically put all these brain areas on the same clock. But this idea is also a bit speculative because think about the rhythm of the heartbeat across species. It's widely different. The speed of the heartbeat really depends a lot on body size. So the rats and mice that we've been studying, they have several hundreds of beats per minute. Humans, you know, they have something like 60 to 80 beats per minute. And if you think about blue whales, they have something between two and 20 beats per minute. And all these living things have brains. And it's hard to imagine from a more conceptual or philosophical point of view, how this should be really leading to coordinated activity if, if it's so widely different. So there's still lots of open questions out there. Super interesting. What do you want to work on next? What do you think is, is worth pursuing at this point? Personally, I will probably go back to affection. <laughs> <laughs> Not, nothing wrong with olfaction. It's a great field. But we will probably also try to study in our preparation more directly how these vessel dilations and contractions, how they actually happen. So we will try to directly image that and to really get a hold on what's going on there. But if we think about human cognition, I mean, I think that's other people's business to be honest. <laughs> that's great. Well, Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really interesting. Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, for having me and for allowing us to talk about our fascinating new ideas. Veronica Egger is a professor of neurophysiology in the Institute of Zoology at the University of Regensburg, Germany. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine, or you can listen on our website, science.org slash podcast. The show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Megan Tuck at Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.